Welcome again to 12 South. We are um, wrapping up a sermon series today, very fittingly with the passage that we're in. We've been in a sermon series all spring, kind of looking at these fresh encounters with Jesus, um, what he was like, how he treated people, how acutely he was able to be present in the moment to know exactly what was needed. Even if not always fully understood, he was um, able in real time to be so present with people, to listen, to hear, to speak, to know when to be silent. Um, kind of a master, wonderful counselor. And so we've seen that in all these encounters with Jesus, and today is no different, very fitting, uh, kind of culminates in this uh, last encounter that we'll look at. Before we dive into the passage, just want to tell you this summer we're going to be in a series that I'm very excited about. Ten weeks this summer, kind of get us till the beginning of the next school year, um, is we're going to be taking a deep dive on the Apostles' Creed, uh, which I'm very uh, excited about. We'll be looking Uh, basing it in scripture, but looking at this historic uh, creed, uh, this confession of what we believe uh, the Bible teaches us. So excited about 10 weeks in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, That should handle some of our space issues uh, this summer. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, um, But our last encounter with Jesus is going to be uh, a very, very intriguing passage in Luke chapter 24, last chapter in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24 um, is a post-resurrection account of Jesus. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 13. Jesus has already died, rose again. The women have come to the tomb uh, to embalm him. He is not there. Mary, in the book of John at least, has an encounter with him, the gardener, she thinks. So Mary has seen the risen Jesus. Uh, they get back and tell the disciples that the tomb is empty. John and uh, Peter run to the, the empty tomb to investigate for themselves. That happens in the book of Luke as well. And then we have this next encounter of the resurrection and the resurrected Jesus. Starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them, that's disciples, um, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, 
For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. What a strange encounter. Luke tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that he is giving a very well-researched eyewitness account of Jesus. The document that Luke wrote down was a, he was a doctor, he was a, a lawyer, he was actually very astute. And so he said, I'm going to only tell you the truth by getting all eyewitness accounts for my presentation of the story of Jesus. And this is one of the ones Jesus was alive for 40 days after he uh, died and rose again before he ascended to the Father. There were a lot of encounters with the risen Jesus that the authors of the Gospels could have picked, and Luke chose this one. So what Luke just told us, just as a brief recap, is that there are these two disciples leaving Jerusalem on the road back home to a little town, a little village called Emmaus, where they were from. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And we're told in the passage that they're on their way home and they're sad. They're sad and dejected and downcast as they leave Jerusalem because the events that they had witnessed in Jerusalem didn't go down the way that they had hoped that they would. And so they're on the road, dejected, downcast, sad, dashed hopes on the road back home to Emmaus, and they're interrupted by this stranger. It's Jesus, but they don't know that it's Jesus yet, which is fascinating. They have this long conversation with him, which we'll look at in detail. And they get to their house in Emmaus and they say, Jesus, stay with us tonight. They don't know that it's Jesus yet. Sir, stay with us tonight. Very hospitable culture. You welcomed in the stranger. You welcomed in uh, those traveling through. And so they, they beg him to stay. They're enjoying talking with him. And so they're starting to break bread. They're starting to have dinner with Jesus. They don't know that it's Jesus yet. And suddenly as Jesus breaks the bread, they realize that it's him. They realize this is the Jesus we've been following. This is the Jesus we've been around. This is the Jesus for years who've taught us. This is Jesus who we came to Jerusalem to see what he would do. And the moment that they see that it's Jesus, he puts on his invisibility cloak and he disappears. Which is like, what? Like, what, Jesus, what are you doing? He, he vapes, he's gone. Now he didn't actually vape, but he, you know, he, he. <laughs> they are so moved by the interaction that it's nighttime now. It's after dinner time. The sun is set. There are no street lights. They get up from their seat and they run back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples, the 11 and those who are with them, that Jesus has actually risen from the dead. The story is true. The stories are not done. This strange post-resurrection interaction encounter with Jesus and so I want to take us back to this scene. I want to take us back to um, this road to Emmaus and get on the road ourselves if we can. If you are new here and you haven't seen me use a whiteboard, this, this could go a couple of ways, okay? Um, this is either going to get really clear or really long, hopefully not both, uh, but hopefully the whiteboard helps bring things in. Um, those that have been here, some of you are smiling, some of you are rolling your eyes, but we're going we're gonna to go for it, okay? Um, no, I'm kidding. I love it. So Luke 24 
If we're gonna understand Luke 24 and all that just took place, we actually have to back the story way up to the beginning. We have to go back to Genesis 1 through 3. Can people in the back see this? Jim K., you got an eye on this? We good, Doug Dahl? Good, okay. Jim didn't answer, so maybe Jim can't see, but Doug can see. Okay, good, here we go. So we're gonna back the story way up because the disciples on the road to Emmaus are carrying with them the storyline of the people of God of Israel since the beginning. And all of their expectations and all that they longed for started way at the beginning. So way back in the beginning, when the world was created, when God breathed the world into existence, he's like an artist with a blank canvas. He paints this beautiful picture. And the way that Genesis 1 and 2 describes this picture is that mankind and creation and the divine are all in harmony together. There was no discord. There was no, there was no wars. There was no hatred. There was only peace and shalom reigning in the Garden of Eden. And then Genesis 3 happens, and shalom in the garden is shattered. The way that it was intended to be, God's good grand design for his people and for his world is shattered by the sin of Adam. And so what was good has now been decimated. What was in harmony now has discord. What was beautiful now is disintegrated. But in the, in the wreckage of Genesis 1 through 3, there's this promise that's made. It's on the pages of Genesis chapter 3. From the wreckage, this promise comes from God. And he says, I know what has been lost. I know what has been destroyed, but I will come one day and I will redeem that. I will come one day and I will redeem. I will rebuild. I will remake. I will restore. I will crush the serpent's head. I, light will push out the darkness one day. And so from Genesis 3 on, all the way up until the time of Jesus, there are, there are promises upon promises, there are hopes upon hopes, there are expectations upon expectations that this promise to redeem what was lost and shattered in the garden will happen. And for the Old Testament Jew, for the Old Testament Israelite, the Old Testament follows the story of Israel, the people of God. For those people that were receiving these promises that one day all will be redeemed, they're all inextricably tied to this Old Testament Hebrew word that we call Messiah. Mashiach is the Hebrew word. It means the one, the chosen one, the anointed one. Way before Harry Potter did it, Jesus did it. Okay, this is like, he is the one. He is the one that all the hopes of this first promise to redeem what was, was lost in the garden, the Messiah will do it. And so all these hopes, all these expectations, all these promises, what the Messiah will be like, what the Messiah will come to do, what the Messiah will do to redeem was tied to all the Old Testament hopes and prophecies of the people of God. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus know all of this. They're hoping that Jesus is the one. They're hoping that Jesus is the Messiah. And so for these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they leave Jerusalem dejected and sad because their hope of the Messiah, their hope of the one who would come to redeem did not go the way that they wanted to. They thought Jesus was going to be the one to do the redeeming, but now that Jesus is dead. And so this word redeem, it does have a definition. It means to liberate or it means to set free. The problem with that for these disciples on the road to Emmaus was they had a definition of what redemption was going to look like for them. They knew what the word meant. It means to liberate. It means to set free. Oh, I got an idea about what that means. Hey, we're underneath Roman rule right now. We're underneath Roman oppression right now. And to be set free, to be redeemed means Jesus or Messiah. When you come, you will set us free from the Roman rule. You will set us free from our oppressors and give us our homeland back. You will make Israel great again. Mega, 
Sorry, too soon. But they, <laughs> they, they had all these national hopes with what their Messiah would come do. You better believe we got an idea of what redemption will look like for us. We will be set free from our oppressor. We will be liberated from the Roman arm that keeps us bound. Our Messiah, as they defined it, would end their suffering as they saw it. And so they recap for Jesus, Jesus is incognito at this point, they recap for Jesus all that had led up to the past week's events and all that they had hoped for, all that, hey, this is what was going on. Jesus was this, this man named Jesus. They're talking to Jesus. This man named Jesus was this mighty prophet in word and deed. And, they, and we, we really thought, we really thought he was the one to liberate, to set free. And they sum up how they're doing in verse 21. They disclose the state of their hearts. They say this in verse 21. You can throw this up there, Will. They say this. They say, we had hoped that Jesus was to be the one. The one to do what? To redeem Israel. We had hoped, but hey, newsflash, stranger on the road to Emmaus, we're not hoping anymore. We had hoped. We gave up on hoping because we came into Jerusalem and Passover week with this Messiah in front of us, the one who was gonna be the one, the one who was gonna redeem us and liberate us and set us free. And now that guy is dead. And so we came into Jerusalem with all these hopes and now we're leaving Jerusalem, the place of our dashed hopes, and now we're headed back home to reality where there is no hope anymore. We had hope, we had hoped, not anymore. We came in with thousands of years of history and expectations and our hopes let us down. The road to Emmaus, literally and allegorically, the road to Emmaus is full of dashed hopes. And I don't care what you've hoped in that has let you down, a marriage, a job, a relationship, a journey of self-discovery, a promotion. You've hoped in something, getting into a school, getting a job, getting the internship, getting a raise, getting a significant other, getting your light back. Whatever you've set your hopes on that would finally do it, finally turn it, finally make it arrive. You set your hopes on something and when that hope lets you down, it's awful. I don't even have to ask you the details of it. I just know this, dashed hopes are terrible. Proverbs chapter 13 talks about this we had hoped place. And Proverbs 13, 12 says that hope deferred, meaning hope that you set something in and then that hopes get dashed, that hope gets deferred, makes the heart sick. You wanna know what the disciples on the road to Emmaus were feeling? You wanna know what they were experiencing? Their existential reality? They had sick hearts. What creates sick hearts when hope gets deferred? When you set your hope on something and it doesn't work out the way that you wanted it to, your hopes get deferred. What does a hope deferred life feel like? It feels like a sick heart. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What's that place like for you? What's the heart sick road to Emmaus like for you? Jerusalem's in the past. You've lived through what you thought would deliver. It didn't go the way that you wanted it to. And now I'm on this road and it's not going the way that I want it to. And now I'm on this lonely road. I'm going back into my reality with my hopes behind me and my heart is sick. Here's some, here's some indicators from the story 
of what life on the Emmaus road of dashed hopes is like. We're told in here that they're sad. We're told in here that they used to hope. We had hoped. It's now gone. But here's some other indicators that I just, I just want to pull out. That here's how you'll know if you'll listen to your life. Here's how you'll know if you're on a heart sick road. Here's how you'll know if you're living in the place of dashed hopes. The first is this. Their language and their actions declare this. This is how they're defining things. I'm done. I'm so done with this. This story is over. This is how stories go. This is how my life is gonna go. I'm now headed back to Emmaus because I'm done in Jerusalem. I'm done. When you make declarative statements about how ultimate things are going to work out, here we go again. Here we go again. You know what? I'm done with that. Thanks. I'm done risking, hoping, because I'm tired of having a sick heart. I'm done. I'm done is a great, and however that flushes out, I'm done is a great indicator on the radar that you've got a sick heart. Here's another one. This one's painful for me. You may or may not know this, but I'm a verbal processor, okay? And here's what we see them doing. And Luke does a masterful job of this as he retells the story of this road to Emmaus and this interaction. For 11 of the 14 verses that they're with Jesus, the two disciples on the road do all the talking Talking, talking, talking. Now, processing's good. Overprocessing is a great defense mechanism to keep you in this place. I've talked about it, I've talked about it. I just need to keep talking about it. I, and if I, I, if I meet someone new, I gotta talk to them all about it. And then if I talk to old friends, they need to know that I'm still kind of swimming in it. So I gotta keep talking, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. They are on the road with the living Jesus and they're doing all the talking. Talking, 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 talking. You processing's great. Overprocessing will keep you in this place. Here's the third thing. And again, we got to be gracious with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus because we're we're the same. But it's not just the, the talking, 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 talking that they do. It's the kind of talking that they do, and it's the the kind of processing that they're doing. Look at how they talk to Jesus. It's in verse. Uh, verse 18, throw that verse up there, Will. This is how they talk to Jesus. It's so pretentious. Jesus is going, hey, what things are you guys talking about? And they're going, are you the dumbest guy alive? Like, how do you not know what I'm talking about? Have you, have you been living under a rock? How obtuse are you? How can you not see? And when we talk to people in our, I'm done over-talking, 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 our heart's sick, dashed hopes place, we can get real pretentious in how we talk to people. How do you not see me? How do you not get me? How, how do you, I've been talking. Have you not been listening? There's things going on in my life and we would be offended at people that would even ask, hey, what, what kind of things are you talking about? <laughs> do, you, do you not know? Have you not, have you not been, uh, where have you been? And this way that we can talk this way to ourselves and to other people, and especially how we can talk to Jesus. Jesus, you have the audacity to show up and ask me what things I'm talking about. Where have you been? And this invitation to at least see ourselves honestly to go, how pretentiously do we talk to people about how we're doing? Like, I expect that you should be fully up to speed in how I'm doing. Are you not thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about me? Dashed hopes will create all of these in us, a place that makes us really easily angered, really bitter, really easily able to look down on other people. This is what it looks like to live with dashed hopes. Dashed hopes, as we define 
what hope should look like. I've got an idea of what redemption would look like. So do these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when those hopes aren't met, I get dashed. And then this is how I live and swirl and stay in a place of a sick heart with dashed hopes. But then, then at the end of the story, we get over here. At the end of the story, listen to how these two disciples on the road to Emmaus describe how they're doing at the end of the story. Verse 32, something has happened to them and then this is how they define themselves. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They go from a place of heart sick to a place of heart burning. This is not like indigestion. This is like, they were so alive. They were alive again. There had been life and energy and joy reinfused into them. My heart's been set on fire. It's a blaze. I'm living again. And something ha- happens to them in between their heart sickness, their I'm doneness. And now verse 32, they're closing this story out by saying, our hearts are alive within us. Our hearts are burning within us. So how did they go from a heart-sick place to a heart-burning place. Their hearts are so on fire, so set ablaze, that it's pitch black outside, and they run back to Jerusalem. Pitch black, they run back to Jerusalem. Not safe. Why? I can't contain this. I have to go tell the other disciples that this is real, that this is the story, that the story's not over. So what happens to them? What did Jesus do for them that caused this transformative happening to happen to them? How do they go from sick hearts to burning hearts? Verse 25 through 27, this is when Jesus finally starts speaking to them. Verse 25 to 27, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and please don't hear that condescendingly. What that term really means is like, he's full of compassion, like, oh, you don't get it. You don't get it. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? I'm gonna draw a cross and an empty tomb because that's what Jesus just said. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into glory. So into the place of their dashed hopes, where their hearts are sick, he shows them that their previous assumptions about the Messiah were misplaced. He shows to them that their definitions of what it would mean for them to be redeemed by the Messiah, to be set free by the Messiah, to be liberated by the Messiah were different than the definitions they had. And what was central to any first century Jews, but especially these men who had come to Jerusalem with the hopes of being liberated, of being redeemed by the Messiah, what was central to their assumptions about their Messiah was our Messiah will not suffer. And it's understandable. To them, the notion of a crucified Messiah, the notion of a, of a suffering Messiah was not just an oxymoron, it, it sounded almost blasphemous. That they're going, wait, 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 no, 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 no. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs are kings. Messiahs are victors. Messiahs rule the day. Messiahs sit on thrones. They don't go to graves. 
And sweetly but firmly, Jesus says to them, you foolish ones. And again, he's not judging them. He's not condescending to them. He's saying, oh, you don't, you don't get it. Here's what he has to reorient them to in their dashed hopes, in their sick heart, is this Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must suffer. And I don't know what your previous definitions, Road to Emmaus disciples, are of the Messiah, but the Messiah must suffer. And in order to prove to them that the Messiah of the Bible, the one who would come and redeem his people, the one who would come and liberate his people, the one who would come and set free his people, in order to prove to them that the Messiah must do something, he, Jesus does something magical. It really is unbelievable. I wish we could preach a whole sermon on just this one verse, but we don't have time, unless you are up for it. But we don't know. No one nodded yes. So we're just going to kind of breeze through it. But this is what he does for them. Jesus has a Bible study with them, which would have been amazing. Jesus has a Bible study on the road. He's, he's going, okay, I need to show you some things that prove to you that the Messiah, in order to redeem and liberate, the Messiah must suffer. And here's how he proves it to them. Verse 27, it's one of the most loaded verses in all of scripture. Look at what he says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, when it says in there, Moses and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole Old Testament. So at this point in history, that's the only Bible we've got. Like that's the Bible Jesus read. So Jesus opens up the whole Bible, Genesis to Malachi. And I don't, he's going, page one. We, I need to show you what this story of Genesis to Malachi was all about. And what does Jesus say that the whole Old Testament... All of this right here, when Jesus opens it up for him, he says, hey, actually, if you've missed the fact that the Messiah must suffer, let me show this to you by going back over all the stories that you know, and let me show you how all those stories ultimately were about one thing, me. I know you thought that the story of Abraham when he had to climb Mount Moriah in the book of Genesis and sacrifice his son Isaac, I know you thought that that story was about Abraham and Isaac. But don't you remember in that story, Emmaus disciples, how they get to the top and he ties Isaac down on the altar and Abraham lifts his knife to sacrifice his son and God stops the sacrifice and says, I will provide for you the sacrifice that's needed. That story was about me. Because several thousand years later, I would climb up the same hills right around Mount Moriah and God would tie his son on the altar, but he wouldn't stop the knife. God would provide the sacrifice. Every story in the Old Testament, all your Old Testament heroes, Samson and Moses and David and Adam, all of them, all of them, all of them, all of them, Jesus is saying, hey, I know you thought that story was about your heroes. They were about the hero. I know you thought that the Old Testament sacrificial system was about just the blood of goats and the blood of lambs being spilled for all eternity, but you need to know those were just whispers. Those were just shadows. Those were just movie previews for the blockbuster hit, which was me. That we don't have to sacrifice lambs and goats anymore because one lamb has been sacrificed and that lamb was me. A day of atonement has come once and for all and that day of atonement that you practice every year, you don't have to do that anymore. I wish we could talk about how every single page of the Old Testament, Jesus is saying in this verse, all those stories, all those illusions, all those metaphors, all those themes, all of them were leading to me. And here's what he's saying. 
Every page of the Old Testament was pointing to, hoping in, waiting for a Messiah who would come and suffer. And by that Messiah coming and suffering, he wouldn't just come to redeem Israel, he would come to redeem the world. In other words, Jesus tells them that their hopes of redemption were not only misplaced, they were far too small. And he's saying to them that because the Messiah has come and suffered, because this has now happened, because the Son of Man, because the Messiah came and suffered, now hope is alive. Jesus births hope in them on the road. That's what they say. Didn't our hearts burn? Like something came alive in us. Something was birthed in us. This is amazing that they say after Jesus vapes from their presence and goes invisible, no one knows why he did it or where he went, but he gets out of their presence and they say, didn't our hearts burn for us? Not because we were living with this resurrected man. No, because he opened the scriptures for us and showed us how the Messiah had to suffer. And now the story is not over. That's what made their hearts burn. More than being with a resurrected dude was the fact that the scriptures were open for them and they saw that the Messiah must come and suffer. Jesus births a hope that's far bigger than their small view of it and he births the hope of a redemption that is far better than their small definition of it. Jesus didn't come to make Israel great again. He came to make the world whole again. And do you know what the Bible calls that future hope where all will be made well and where all that was made uh, ruined in Genesis 3, all that was lost in the garden, when all that will be restored, it calls all of that glory. That's supposed to be shining, okay? And it says, hey, the hope of all this being restored one day will be glorious. And there's a hope that the story's not over. There's a hope. Your hearts are burning, Emmaus Road disciples, because the story's not over yet and glory still awaits you. And my suffering is how you know that it's gonna happen. By his suffering and by his resurrection, the promises of Genesis chapter three and every promise after it is now guaranteed. The resurrection, the suffering and resurrection of Jesus is the down payment. It's the guarantee. It's the dowry for the wedding day that one day the world will end in glory. One day sadness will cease. One day the wars inside of you and the wars outside of you will be over. And one day your pain and your loss will be replaced with comfort and joy. That's the hope that a suffering but living Messiah gives you. The story is not over. Because please note this. This this is unbelievable how they go from heart sickness, dashed hopes, we had hope, we're sad, to then heart burning. Please note in their context, none of their circumstances change. Nothing about their world changes. They're still under Roman rule. They're still under Roman oppression. The political situation that they wanted to see happen that didn't happen is still intact. All of their previous dashed hopes are still dashed. Well, we thought the Messiah was gonna come rescue Israel. Didn't do that. That's still true, but their hearts are alive over here. None of their circumstances have changed. And yet their hearts are burning with hope. So burning with hope that they run back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Because here's what the hope 
from a suffering Messiah gives to me. This hope, the hope of the suffering Messiah, the hope of a crucified, resurrected Messiah, here's the kind of hope that it gives you. It gives you a hope that none of your circumstances can touch. It puts your hope in a place. It puts your hope in a reality that the changing circumstances and seasons of your life cannot take away. But experientially, let's be honest about this for a minute. Experientially, this means if my hope is not tied to my circumstances, if my hope that's birthed within me, that creates this burning heart within me is not tied to my circumstances or my circumstances changing, here's what that means my life will be like. It means that the place of hope is also the place of waiting, running out of room. To hope is to wait and to wait is to hope. In fact, it's the same word in Hebrew. To hope is to wait and to wait is to hope. So if you're gonna have hope birthed up in you, if you're gonna have a heart burning with hope, it means you are signing up for an excruciating experience of a life of waiting. No one's good at waiting. Waiting's awful. Here's what Romans 8 says about it though. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for it, we wait for it with patience. Hoping means not having what you long for now. Hoping means sometimes living in a reality that you wish were different, but having to wait until it happens. This is the hope from a suffering Messiah. It means It means hope from a suffering but resurrected Messiah means I'm able to say with great certainty about all of my longings and all of my desires and all of my hopes, hope from a resurrected Messiah means I'm able to say these two very powerful words. Here, you wanna know what the language of a hoper is? Two really powerful words, not yet. Those are really painful to say. but it's the hope that Jesus gives you is that no matter what you are facing, guess what? You can look at those circumstances and look at them with confidence and with humility and with certainty and say, my hopes are not coming to fruition yet. But one day the story will end in glory. One day all this will be made right. So not yet. This is the reality of every single person listed in Hebrews 11, the Hebrews 11 hall of faith, all the Old Testament heroes, Samson, Joshua, David, everybody that gets listed, Jacob, everybody that's in there. Do you know what their reality was? Every single person in that list in Hebrews 11 had a reality that they wished looked different than it did. And all of them, every single one of them were peering over the horizon of time and watching the sun come up and going, my reality doesn't look the way that I want it to, but one day it will. All of them were looking for a city that wasn't here yet. All of them were looking for a kingdom that hadn't come yet. And they were all standing in their present tense with this dangerous thing called hope and saying, not yet, not yet. But I'm looking over the history of time and I'm looking over the future of time and I'm saying, one day it will be made right. One day glory will reign. One day sadness will cease. One day I will know I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. One day, one day, not yet. This is what it means to be a Christian. 
It's what it means to have faith. It's what it means to have hope, to look at your circumstances with the weight of glory within you and the hope that it births and look at it and say, not yet. Waiting and hoping, hoping and waiting and nothing about your circumstances may change yet. And you in that place will have hope. But if we look at the passage and kind of study some things near the end of their interaction, I think we'll see some helpful things about sometimes what life with a burning heart looks like. I'm gonna do this really briefly, but this, this, this is really important for us because this is not just allegorical for, for, for us or for them. This really happened to these two people on the road to Emmaus. And the mystery around this, but also the, the frustrating reality of this is that when you're on the road of hope, when you have hope burning inside of you for a not yet time and space, sometimes Jesus appears to you on that road and he makes everything crystal clear. Sometimes. Sometimes he, put, he like connects all the puzzle pieces and you're going, oh my gosh, I can see what you were doing. I can see how all this comes together. Oh my gosh, suffering Messiah. I can see all of this fitting together. And then sometimes he vanishes. And sometimes he hides himself. And sometimes you don't have a clue what he's doing. And sometimes you can't make it all fit. And sometimes you're going, where, where are you? What, why, why was it so clear last Tuesday and now I feel like I'm lost again and I don't know and where I'm, why can you not make yourself as real as you did then? But, and this is huge, this is what we see the disciples doing. Even after Jesus vanishes from them, they know that because he suffered and because he suffered and died but didn't stay dead, because there's an empty tomb, here's what I can know on my road of hope, even when Jesus seems distant. Hope is alive because the story's not over. My suffering doesn't get to win the day because a Messiah who suffered and died but didn't stay dead means that my suffering does not get the final word. What gets the final word? Hope does. So even when he seems distant, even when it doesn't make sense, even when he vanishes seemingly, and I can't see him or find his hand in anything, my hope is alive because he is. And so then as my heart sickness, as the practices of my heart sickness get alchemized through the suffering and glory of Jesus, I have to constantly be taking how I'm handling my heart sickness and take it through the suffering of Jesus. And by the way, if you are heart sick or your friends are heart sick, they don't need a plan. They, they don't need a guide to show them. They don't, they don't need for you to tell them all that you've learned on your road of heart sickness. Here's what we all need when our hearts are sick. We need a fresh encounter with the suffering of Jesus. And here, even beyond my ability to understand my suffering, here's what being alchemized through the suffering of Jesus will do for me and my practices. Instead of saying, I'm done, I'm not done, I'm alive. And now my burning heart, my living heart, actually has the ability to keep hoping and keep waiting. I'm not done, I'm alive. And then instead of doing all the talking, hopers do a whole lot of listening. Each of you should see to it to listen more than he speaks, James says, as wisdom in the New Testament. Hopers are great listeners because I don't have to do all the talking, talking, talking because I know what my hope is in and I know that I will be waiting on that. And then the last thing is that, is that hopers are not pretentious, we're humble. And we have these powerful words, not yet, 
We have these, this ability to say, I know that waiting is hard. I know that hoping is hard, but I can be humble knowing that even when it doesn't make sense, even when I can't see how all the roads collide for my good, one day this story will end in glory. Let's pray. Jesus, hoping is hard. And I pray I, I can look around the room and know the stories of heart sickness that people are in today. The dashed hopes of a reality that they wish was different. And so would you, give us, would you give us hope to look over the horizon to see that the story is not done? Would you give us hope to look over the horizon to see what a suffering Messiah does for us? Would you give us a fresh taste of that this morning? We pray in your name, amen.